Welcome back, everybody. My name's Michael Walsh. You know the routine. Or welcome for the first time if you if you don't know the routine. If this is your first click, thanks for tuning in. The podcast is called I'll Grieve You With This. Today's episode, I'm really excited to present. Kelly Carlin was nice enough to sit down with me and, you know, tell me all about what it was like growing up as the only child with George Carlin for a father and Brenda Carlin for a mother, the household dynamics therein, and the illnesses that ultimately led to their deaths, the book that she wrote about being a Carlin, and many other things. I hope you guys enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Without further ado, this is episode 29 with Kelly Carlin. Well, I'm so glad to have you on. My guest today is uh, an author, a life coach, a performer, daughter of George and Brenda Carlin. (laughs) Uh, Kelly Carlin, thanks so much for sharing your time with me. My pleasure, Micah. I really do appreciate it. And I should say thanks for already sharing so much about your father. I just finished reading your book, A Carlin Home Companion, and... By way of introduction, in case any of my listeners have been living under a rock for the last hundred years, your father, of course, known to the world as George Carlin, one of the most famous comedians of all time. I think it'd be difficult to overstate his impact and his influence on the world, on me personally, on many millions of people. Uh, But I had not really even known anything about your mother, Brenda Carlin, before reading this, so... It was very nice to have an insight into the rest of the members of the Carlin household. (laughs) Yeah. And I understand this was a a play that you performed for a while before you turned it into a book. Yeah. But if you're willing to, I'd love to talk about both of your parents' deaths individually. But before we start that, you know, a lot of this book is sort of, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, is about being the only child of two people that were dealing with their own different addictions and you trying to sort of having to grow up a little bit quicker than maybe other people just for way of introduction. Can you tell me what it was like living with uh, George and Brenda as parents? Yeah. And you know, I, I always preface this and really the reason I did my solo show and ultimately the book too, which was a great, amazing, cool thing to have to, to get to do um is that i knew my story was not that extraordinary even though i had this pretty extraordinary father <laughs> and a pretty extraordinary mother too um but i knew our story was in a lot of ways uh an american story very much an american story uh, especially those of us who were born in the 60s and were raised in the 60s and the 70s but especially like you know kind of adolescence 70s, high school 70s. Um, this was an experience for a lot of us that we were we were raised by wolves, <laughs> <laughs> left to our own devices. Um, and so, you know, this, and the interesting thing about my parents too is they were of a generation, which was they were not the baby boomer generation. They were a little older than the people who experienced the 60s as the 60s, even though my parents experienced it that way too. But they, you know, my dad was 30 um, 
1963. So, I mean, in 1967. So he was already, you know, someone you couldn't trust. <laughs> yeah, he was kind of the square in the first right. part of his Well, career. yeah, and, and age-wise, you know, they always said kind of one of the phrases back then was, you know, don't trust anyone over 30, which now we think about that and we're like, wow. Yeah. Uh, but but he was, he really bridged those generations. So my parents weren't typical baby boomers, they were actually members of what they call the silent generation. Um, but they participated in the counterculture big time because essentially that's who they were also. And with that came um, a lot of drinking. My mother was an alcoholic and um, probably was the day my dad met her in 1960 in Dayton, Ohio. She was quite the party girl from what I understand. And, uh, and then my dad had been smoking weed since he was 13 or 14, Upper West Side in New York, um, you know, because he basically grew up in Harlem. I, I used to call it Irish Harlem. And so they were both um, already self-medicating, as they say these days. Sure. And, and so, but, you know, and things were a little crazy and chaotic with my mom's alcoholism, but then things got really insane when my dad broke through as a counterculture comedian and really changed his style and his, his approach to his, his work. Um, because that's really when like cocaine came into the thing. And that's really when it got super crazy and hard to be around and hard to be an only child of and hard to mitigate their arguments. And, uh, because it's uh, cocaine is like jet fuel, you know, it's just, it's just such an evil fucking drug as my dad. I think my dad and, and other people have talked about it, you know, like marijuana brings people together. Everyone wants to pass the joint, whereas cocaine, the minute you get it, you don't want to share it with anybody. Yeah. So it's, it says a lot about that drug. Um, so it was intense, uh, to be an only child in that situation and be an empath and, um, to be a smart kid and know what's going on. And, and then everyone pretending like it isn't. Um, and part of the reason I wanted to write the book was so many kids I know came home from school and didn't know what they were going to find, what mood their parents were going to be in, what state their parents were going to be in. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing too, is, the irony of our life and my dad's life in a lot of ways was here he was the guy who was known as the one who spoke truth to power on stage. And yet uh, when your family is entangled with addiction and codependence, no one's willing to speak truth to anything in the room. And so I really grew up with that dichotomy which can make you a little crazy. <laughs> really? It sounds like the most stable household I could imagine. It was fine. It was great. As you know, and that's, that was our rule too. You know, is everything okay? Oh yeah. No, everything's fine. It's great. Yeah. It's so what I get from my, the book, um, you kind of felt you found a way to communicate with your father much later in life. It sounds like uh, perhaps your connection grew maybe in your, in your thirties. And yeah, it actually, after my mom's death, um, my mom's death was a turning point for us, for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me, I mean, the whole world knows or feels like they know your father's sense of humor. Could you tell me about Brenda's sense of humor? What what made her laugh? Oh, God. Well, first of all, she was an easy laugh and had a great laugh. Like, like in an audience, you knew my mom's laugh. She was one of those laughers. And, and obviously... 
every entertainer and comedian needs someone who will laugh at their jokes. And so I know, guessing that was part of their bonding for sure. My mom was also kind of silly and goofy. Um, and, uh, She wasn't the one necessarily to crack jokes, but she had a great sense of humor. Her humor came out in other ways. And she really learned, especially through her sobriety, to learn to laugh at herself. And I think that is one of the signs of like, you know, someone really doing their work on themselves when they can learn to laugh at themselves, because it means they can kind of walk their ego out of the room and really not take themselves so seriously. Uh, So she had a really sharp eye for comedy. She ended up becoming a producer on HBO's Young Comedians special. So there used to be these in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, probably early 80s, uh, these Young Comedian specials where she would go out as a talent scout around town in Vegas and other places and look for new talent. And she helped a lot of like PB Herman and Howie Mandel and a bunch of these guys kind of come up through, through that stuff. So she, she had a keen, a keen ear for that stuff. That's awesome. That's fascinating to hear about that. Um, So it seems like there's a market point in her life when you were a teenager, she got sober and then, yeah, that was probably a different, a different mother, huh? Sort of. Yeah. You know, with the thing about my mom, she was a real Jekyll and Hyde when she was drunk or, you know, uh, get it, getting to a certain point in in inebriation, whatever it was. And like I said, the cocaine didn't (laughs) help that at all. Uh, so she was kind of two people all the time. She was, when she was sober, she was warm and funny and adventurous and, um, inclusive, uh, you know, and interested in the world. And when she was at a certain point of intoxication, she was bitter and angry and felt resentful and felt attacked and was always defensive and was really, really hard to be around. And, um, with the cocaine coming into our life, she, she started, basically she was a couple of times went to hospitals, you know, and they would say to me, Oh, she's got a, a pinched nerve or she's dealing with some nutritional issues. And she was just binging a lot of Coke and a lot of stuff. Seventies euphemism for you almost died. Yeah. So we're going to put you in the hospital for five days, you know, and like get your electrolytes back up or whatever the fuck. Must be exhaustion. Yeah, exactly. Like whatever they were calling it, I was kind of clueless, even though I knew what was going on. And then it got to the point where she was really not eating anymore and could, could, could not even walk. She had the shakes so bad. And, you know, the doctors were telling her she had to go into rehab and to save her life. And she did. We, I mean, my dad and I finally convinced her to go and she really thought she was going to die there. She didn't think she would make it through. Um, And they weren't sure either at that time, they didn't really have rehab centers. This was the very, very beginning of that. It was part of the mental institution at St. John's hospital in Santa Monica. This is when they were phasing out lobotomies and starting the the newer Probably, Hopefully. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And so it was called the chemical dependency center. It was like a few beds inside of this mental health wing Um, And they did have the beginning of a program and she just took to it. I mean, she, it saved her life. It saved her 
her her sanity, obviously. And after she got through the hardest days of, you know, shaking and not being able to function and and getting to eat again and all of that and kind of the health part of it being over, uh, she did. She came alive and it was amazing to have her back. And it was also weird because I was then 12 years old and she'd kind of been really MIA for me for, a, you know, easily since I was four or five when the drinking started, the heavy drinking started, but really the last five years for sure um, since I was like seven or eight. And so, and then I'm like an adolescent girl and adolescent girls really don't want to have anything to do with their moms anyway. (laughs) It was an awkward time to get your mom back. uh, And I really wasn't having any of it. I had a lot of, uh, you know, we had a lot of stuff to work through still. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, would you mind telling me about, about her death? I understand it happened pretty quickly from, from what I read. Yeah, it was, um, or is that jumping ahead? Would you like to? No, 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 that's fine. That's fine. Um, yeah. So her death was for me, uh, as it is, I think for most people, the death of a parent is a life-changing experience. Um, for me. Yeah. I mean, it's. It's all sorts of things. It's, it's everything. Uh, so she had had, um, when she got sober, she'd had a bunch of health issues after that, and they didn't quite know what it was. And one of them was she had something called non a non B hepatitis. They now call it hep C. Um, she'd used a dirty needle with somebody, Mm. a neighbor, the only time she ever fucking shot drugs, of course. Wow. And she also had fibromyalgia. So she had a horrible autoimmune thing going on and this hep C with the liver. They didn't know what fibromyalgia was back then. This was the mid seventies. They kept patting her on the head and telling her it was all in her mind. This is what they do a lot with women who have health issues. <laughs> and um, Yeah. And yeah, she had horrible, point. horrible joint pain, horrible fatigue, And then the hep C stuff. And then they were giving them like, you know, they were putting her on prednisone for the hep C and stuff. And that made her crazy and gained 50 pounds. And so she had these chronic diseases. And then in her early forties, like her mother, her mother at, uh, in her at 50, her mother got breast cancer and, you know, in Dayton, Ohio in, in 1962, 63, when you got breast cancer, it was all over your body. It was metastasized. They weren't doing mammograms on women and shit like that. But my mom got it. They caught it pretty early. They, she, you know, they did the full surgery. They did a radical mastectomy on her and stuff. She didn't have any chemo. She didn't have any radiation because she knew her liver couldn't take it. <laughs> she knew right. she had killed her liver already. Of course. Um, so she had the breast cancer, but she didn't do anything and they took it all out and everything. So, but, um, so she always had these kind of issues, body issues and health issues and chronic issues. And so she was having just another chronic kind of a thing going on and they didn't know what it was. And I think she kind of knew, I think when people get, uh, you know, cancer, they kind of like, my mom was very intuitive. Um, I think she knew that some other shoe had dropped on some level and I think it terrified her and she didn't probably go as fast as she could have to the doctor. 
So by the time, so, so she had gallbladder symptoms, a gallstone symptoms, basically what was going on. She had some like severe symptoms. And so they took, put her in the hospital and um, they did a CAT scan to see where the gallstones were. And they were going to do whatever they do with gallstones, have surgery, I guess it is. Or they remove your gallbladder or whatever it is. Um, and they went in there and they did this, the CAT scan or the MRI or whatever it was. And she had six tumors on her liver. Wow. And one of them was the size of a quarter. And basically the doctors were like, this is not good. Uh, they said it was not metastasized breast cancer. So this was from the hep C, which is most, if without untreated, hep C untreated will lead to liver cancer. Um, and um, And they said, well, we're going to put you on chemo to give you six months, because at that point they were looking, we were looking at two months. Like they, they said it's, it's, and, and the doctor told me after my mom died, just want to say that, that it was the most aggressive liver cancer he'd ever seen in the 20 years he'd been doing it or whatever. Like it was so aggressive. It was growing underneath the microscope aggressive. Um, Let me ask you, would you have preferred to have that information before she passed? I think she would have. Yeah, that makes sense. I think she would have. Uh, I felt like the doctors really played us. Um, yeah. Uh, so the heard that a lot in the past from people I've interviewed. It's much preferred if you give it to people straight. Like, yeah. Don't sugarcoat it whatsoever. We can deal with this, but what I yeah. can't deal with is not knowing. Yeah, and we and we and we couldn't deal with it, but we we would have. <laughs> You know, it was like, because the way we ended up dealing with it was the way we dealt with everything before, which was nobody can talk about anything. Sure. Um, The old Irish way. (laughs) It was completely. (laughs) Um, And so they did tell us it was aggressive. I mean, uh, you know, they did say, well, we're thinking, we're thinking two to three months, I think they said to us, but but we want to give her chemo to get her to give her six is what they said. Um, and my mother knew from before that her body couldn't take chemo. She knew that, you know, that's why she didn't do it before, but she's like, give it to me. Like we're taking the chemo. And then, um, this was the, around the exact time my dad was turning 60. And so we had a big 60th birthday party planned for him. His, his birthday is May 12th. So this was, um, the end of March when we got this news. And so the first thing we said was, well, we're not going to, we're going to delay the party till mom's feeling better. That was the first untruth we told ourselves. (laughs) Mom's going to be feeling better Uh, soon. We'll be able to have a big party. And then we'll really celebrate. Yeah. That chemo is not going to do a number on her. No, she'll be fine. The illusions Um, that we tell ourselves in the the light of mortality are amazing. (laughs) A hundred percent. And, and then my dad also had his very first book coming out. And of course it was a big deal. He'd gotten a huge advance. He was a big deal. George Carlin was writing a book. It was called brain droppings, uh, ended up being a huge thing. Um, and he had dates, you know, he had concert dates. He was always doing also because if people watch the documentary or read my book or read my dad's, uh, autobiography, uh, you know, that we had money issues all the time. So he needed to be on the road all the time. 
And, and of course he wanted to pr- promote the book hugely as they were going to, he was going to be on every show in America to do that. And, um, so he had a couple of these gigs and he had some of that. And so he was kind of going in and out a little bit and it, it was okay. And then mom started chemo and it was intense and hard for her. And, um, she was in a lot of pain in general. And so right away, they kind of set us up with an oncology nurse to come to the house and have a morphine drip from my mom that she could have a certain amount of morphine all day to help with the pain. And my dad said that, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go on the road. I've got these few gigs to do. It was about four weeks into mom's cancer and we were all kind of like had day nurses and we're, you know, and dad's, he was there when he was there with her and doing, she did one chemo round with him and she did much better when he was there. And then he's like, I really, I can't cancel these dates. And I have this book thing. And, and I called our family doctor who I, this man was amazing. And my mom had trusted him. He was the only one who believed her about the hep C and the fibromyalgia years ago and all of that. And I called him and I said, my dad wants to go out of town. And the oncologist nurse who came to us to set up all the machines and would come maybe every other day just to make sure all the oncology stuff was going okay and her needs were being met. She worked with the the main surgeon guy. Um, She said to me, I told her my dad was going out of town. And she said to me, um, and his birthday was in a week. And she says, well, she's not going to make it to his birthday. And this is the thing about nurses. Believe nurses. <laughs> they give it to you straight. And they're the only ones who really know what's going on. That's what their job is. Their job is to track a patient and know a patient's needs. And they've seen it all. And when they brought the, the morphine machine in, the nurse took me aside. She goes, I'm going to teach you how to override the machine so your mother can have as much as she needs. That's how much pain she was in, huh? Yes. Wow. And that's how much, and and that's like whatever it was going to ramp up to over the weekend that my dad was going out of town and my mom was, and so I knew what was going on. So the minute the oncology nurse tells me all of that, I call our family doctor and I'm like, this is what she's telling me. Um, he cannot go out of town. He needs to be here. Um, and our family doctor said to me, she's, she's going to be okay. She's going to be fine. She's, you know, she's not there yet for sure. You know, um, he can go out of town or whatever. And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't think so. And I'm begging my dad, like, I really don't think you should go out of town. Oh no. Well, the doctors say she's fine. She's stable. And, uh, so he went out of town and, um, it was a Saturday and the key, she'd had her second round of chemo on Friday. Her body was not doing well with the chemo as most people and chemo back then, that was almost 25 plus years ago. It's a little, they, they've kind of dialed it in a little differently. It's a little, you know, God knows what they were giving her. Um, so she lost her ability to like stand up and walk and like her, we'd walked her to the bathroom and she, her legs went buck. I mean, it was horrific, terrifying, scary for her. She was not doing well. They ended up 
wanting to put a catheter in so she didn't have to get up to go to the bathroom, blah, 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 blah. Um, turns out, so the next day was Mother's Day and my mom woke up and she wasn't quite really, it was like she was four years old. Like it's like she was this version of herself that was not quite really verbal, couldn't talk a lot. I was, she, she also was diabetic. So she had, we had to monitor her blood sugar. So it was just this complicated thing. Plus we had this weekend nurse that, you know, the weekend nurse was there, didn't really know us. It was someone from an agency and, you know, and so, and we're like looking at my mom's blood sugar and she'd already had her diabetic, she'd had her insulin and mom, you got to you've got to drink some orange juice. Like you've got to get some sugar in you because this, this is not going to go well today. And she refused. She couldn't, she couldn't drink. I mean, literally she couldn't drink. She couldn't, she was miserable. She couldn't speak. She was like a little kid. She was shaking her head and closing her mouth. And I thought, and I just said to her, um, mom, if you don't drink this orange juice, I'm going to have to call the paramedics. And that was the last thing I said to my mom because she started going into some sort of episode and um, we called the paramedics and we had to take her to the hospital. And when we got to the hospital, she was crashing. And um, my husband was there with me and our best friend, Teresa was there. My dad was out of town and I just called my dad and said he was in New York. And said, you have to get on the first plane and get here right now. She, she's being kept alive by machines. I mean, I told the doctors in the emergency room, I said, you have to keep her alive. You, my parents have been separate for so many big events of their life. And you have, they can't be for this. Like my dad has to be here mm -hmm. for her. He cannot not be here for this. And they did. They fucking kept her alive on 25,000 fucking machines. And my dad, Bob and I got in the limo and went to LAX to pick him up. And that was surreal. Like we, and this is back in the day when you could actually go to the gates <laughs> and we went to the gates and there were all these paparazzi there. And we're thinking, what the fuck? What the fuck? Diana Ross was on the flight. Thank God. It was like, oh, okay. It's just uh, Diana Ross. Yeah. All right. Good. Sure. They're not, they don't, they don't even give a shit about George Carlin. Perfect. <laughs> George who? But yeah, exactly. But we were in the limo and we're driving up to the hospital and you know, it's just weird because I mean, none of us talked about the death or her dying. Like my mom and I had one conversation about it. The two days before she died, we were in the car and she just said to me something like, um, I'm really pissed. I had so much more to do. Um, I really don't want to die. And I just like, was like crying, driving, like, no, I don't want you to die either. Like that was all we could muster as a conversation, as a family. Um, and she did, we, un we ended up turning off the fucking machines and, you know, takes as long as it takes. Um, and, uh, yeah, but the, the interesting thing about it for me was, I'd always felt that I was so terrified of death watching my parents kind of always on the edge and putting out so many fucking chemicals into their bodies. You know, as a kid, you're just terrified that your parents, what's wrong with them? What are they doing? Why are they acting that way? And my parents would fight a lot. And I had so much anxiety around that stuff. And so 
just, I was terrified. My dad had heart attacks and had heart disease and always afraid my dad, we were going to get the phone call in the middle of the night that my dad had died or something. And, and it never had seen this really coming, you know, with my mom, even though she was sick all the time and stuff. Um, but we never, ever talked about it. And I just always thought to myself, oh my God, when my mother dies, they're going to have to like drug me. Like they're going to have to put me in a straitjacket in UCLA <laughs> mental ward for, for like, I don't know how long, because I will not be able to deal with reality. And instead what happened was this incredible sense of peace came over me. Like as if I was like the earth suddenly, like I, it was the complete opposite of anything that I ever thought. And I knew exactly I mean, it's very surreal, as you know, Micah, when, I mean, the thing that happens when you're close to someone who dies, there's this weird, surreal thing that happens where you're now living on a different planet. Oh yeah, very much so. And you're like walking out there in the real world and you're like going, wait, what's going on? What do you mean you're going to the supermarket and that person's yeah. going to, to little league practice and no, 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 no. No, no, no. My mother has died. You yeah. must stop everything you're doing. Right. What you do you know? mean all flights aren't canceled worldwide? <laughs> you <know? laughs> Don't you know that everything's falling apart? Don't you know that the end of the world has happened right. and you people are just going about your fucking business? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's insane. But there was this deep, incredible sense of love and peace and... um like something about your heart cracking open so big that the only thing that there is room for is real emotion, whether that is disbelief or grief or love. Um, or all at the same time. Yes. It's the yes. And moment of life. It's like, yeah. and all of the things are here at right. once. All of my emotions are doing a little improv sketch. A hundred percent. Um, so yeah. And, um, and start to finish. I mean, she had health problems, but that whole trajectory was six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. It was like five and a half weeks. That's insane. That's such a, Ex, ex, it, it was as if she had been hit by a car. I mean, it's it's almost that fast because a none of us were really talking about it, sure. so we were all pretending that it was all going to be normal. Of course, and you I know? imagine it, the gravity doesn't really sink in until until she's dead. And yeah. Like, oh wow this this wasn't like a dress rehearsal. This is the well, only that, one we get. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, Micah, that's that's the real fucking information you get at the end of that one. Is oh. Oh, this shit's real. Yeah. Oh, there's not going to be a take two. There's not a take two. There's not a do-over. There's not a, there's not an opening night. This, this was the show. We were in it already. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And that hits you uh, in a way that it'll never hit you until you have that experience. There's, you can say it till you're blue in the face to friends and other people who've not lived it. But when you've lived it, you know what that wake up call feels like. Sure. And it's instantly you're a different person. You're just like, oh, wow. I, I guess I didn't realize that the sun could like not come up one day. It's sort of what it's like. Exactly. And you're like, wait a minute, you guys can all see the sun? I, I don't see the sun. What happened? Yeah. Like, uh, I, I don't know. I'm it, late for it, work. Yeah. It is the biggest reality check there is. Yes. Yeah.
um, you write about how, you know, you and your father, maybe like a year later, you went and spread her ashes. And then, you know, there was a certain point where George just said, I'm, I, I have to be done with this. I have, I'm done with the ashes. I'm done with the rituals. Yeah. The grieving part. How did that feel? And also, do you think that that was real or that was just him shoving it down into wherever people shove things? Yeah, I think it was both for him. He was very much a compartmentalized man emotionally, as people clearly find out these days, if they've seen the documentary or read my book, it's like, oh yeah, there's a human being down there. Oh, right. And if, he's not he's very, just a legend. He's a, he has a heartbeat. <laughs> right. And people like think they know him on stage. And then I say to them, he never talked about himself on stage and people go, no, that's not true. Oh, Oh, wait a minute. You're right. Like people knew nothing about his real internal life or his real life at all. I mean, wife, daughter had no right. idea he had one, right? Nobody had I mean, those. I would consider myself a huge Carlin fan and I hadn't even really considered you and your mother until kind of recently, unfortunately. Yes. And, uh, I do. I In the book, you, uh, there was a market change at one point when he was on, I think Leno or Letterman and he acknowledged one of your latest, latest achievements. Uh, I don't know what you have an MFA in the masters or a master's, yeah, I have in, a master's in, in counseling psychology. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, psychology. that is funny. Cause until you pointed that out, I'm like, man, George Carlin talks about everything except for <laughs> what yeah. happens after he gets off stage. Exactly. Whereas Richard Pryor, Oh yeah, just laid it all out. Laid it like it just unzipped himself on stage and just bled all over the place, guts and all. And you knew everything about Richard's demons. Uh, But my dad kept his demons aside. And, you know, losing a mother or a parent is very different than losing a spouse. And I know that my parents loved each other deeply And I also know they had a lot of baggage and some of that baggage just got kind of shoved in the attic. And my mother certainly didn't want to go rifing through it. um, Even though my dad might've, and my dad, his personality was to kind of shove it all down anyway. So I knew that they were, they loved each other, uh, but, and they were soulmates for sure. But um, at the end um, they were companions you know, they were companions and there were th- pieces missing for both of them that they would have both absolutely admitted to, but they were together um, and they were companions and they, and they'd been on a long road together. So when my mom died um, and this new person came into my dad's life, Sally Wade, um, my dad was like, you know, because when my dad met my mom, it, he was 23 years old and, um, And so it was kind of like he was a teenager again with Sally and it was kind of awkward and horrible for me, (laughs) (laughs) but he was done. And I had lost my mother and I was processing everything like processing, not just her death. And I was 34 when she died, which is pretty young. Um, She was 57 when she died, which is very young. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, being in your early thirties and I had just come out of an insane decade in my own life, in my twenties, being with an older man and doing a lot of drugs myself and being very much confused about what I wanted and who I was and what I was capable of. I had a very rocky twenties and I was just coming out of that. I'd been with my new husband. We had just gotten married. Um, 
and he's the rock of Gibraltar. He's love of my life and all of that. Um, so I was healing, but I was still very shaky. So I had a lot of healing to do. And, and really my mother's grief allowed me to do a lot of that healing, a lot of coming to terms with her, a lot of healing around that. And, um, and it was going to be a long process and I wasn't going to rush it. Grief takes the fucking time it takes. Hmm. That's one, that's one thing that people listening to this can get. It takes as long as it takes. And for each person that's different from my dad, he put a little timeline on it in a year after her death. I'm going to date this woman, Sally. And then, you know, after a few months after that, 18 months after that, then I'm going to be done with, you know, this ritual with Kelly and grieving with my daughter. Um, whereas I was like, bring it on. <laughs> I got shit to work out. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. He, um, can you tell me about, so he was raised by a single mother and his mother lives. You probably had a relationship with her. Um, I- I did. She lived did, in her eighties. How did he handle her loss or did he ever discuss it? It was one of the happiest days of his life. Wow. That was <laughs> she was a piece of work. Yeah. <laughs> if he, yeah, she was a real piece of work. If you read last words, his, his, you know, I uh, have, but it's been about a decade. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, he talks a, about her a lot. She was a narcissist. She was completely controlling over him and completely basked in his fame when it suited her, um, you know, but they were like this constantly, but she shaped, but she shaped him. My dad did not have a dad. I mean, he had a dad obviously, but he never knew his dad. Yeah. Yeah. And his dad died when he was five or six years old, but he never met his dad and his dad was a raging alcoholic. Um, uh, so, and raging, like really the word raging. Um, and it really affected his older brother, Patrick, who did know his father. It sounds like, um, you know, his mother left, uh, left with the two young boys at a very young age. So. Yeah. My dad was a, was a baby was I think nine months old and Patrick mm. was, um, five years old at the time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, down the fire escape, like escaped basically the marriage. Um, uh, but yeah, so Mary was around and, um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was a relief when she died for Happiest my dad. day of his life. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Huge relief. Wow. Big, big, big relief. Honored her always and had great fondness for a lot of her, but she was, she was a piece of work for sure. Well, you know, these people don't come from nowhere. Uh, yep, you know, truly. Your father, you know, it's interesting to speculate about the origin stories of George Carlin. Um, yeah. So um, after your mother died, you wrote the story while your father was still alive, you were performing this show correct it was a version of it it wasn't the same show i ended up doing after he died um it was called a uh, driven to distraction it was it was and it was based on some journal entries that i had written and then i kind of uh, made them more into the shape that i needed them to kind of the hold the show but so i i interspersed stories from my past with these 5 weeks of watching my mother die and um and all of the pretending we were doing and kind of i was unpacking this like oh it's it was the same pattern we did and i wasn't blaming my parents for it it was like oh it's the same pattern that i did 
when I was a kid, our family, we just pretended nothing bad was happening. And we would say, Hey, how are you doing? We'd say fine. And then when my mom got really sick, we just perpetuated that pattern. And so I just kind of talked about how, you know, that kind of shaped me and, and how these, and how my truth, my own, my inability to speak my own truth came from being a codependent and a people pleaser in all of my relationships, family, and with significant others too. And that I wasn't going to, that my mom's death woke me up to that and that I was going to draw a line in the sand to speak my truth. And I, there I was on stage speaking my truth and it made my dad very uncomfortable because I brought up stuff about their cocaine use and I brought up my mother's death, which, you know, we did our best through, um, but he was not willing to process any of that anymore. And he hadn't. And he just said to me, look, I can't handle this. And I, I love you and you can do this. Of course, you're an artist and this is what you need to do. And, um, but I can't be there. I can't be in the audience. And I think that's when, I don't think I realized it at the moment. I look back on it now, but I really see that it was like, I couldn't do it without him. It wasn't safe for me to breach that part of our relationship. Like I, I'd spent my whole life protecting my parents' bad behavior um, from the world as kids do who have parents that do these things. Um, and I, I'm not blaming anybody or anything like that. That's just what you do because that's, you're on, t you're on the team. I'm on team Carlin. Yeah. Three I'm, musketeers. I'm the, you guys I'm one, of the three, I'm one of the three musketeers is what we do. And you don't even do it consciously. It's just what you do. Sure. Um, and I was still on team Carlin, like, Oh, like I can't, I can't make my, I never wanted my dad to suffer or feel emotional pain. Like that's what we were always doing. We were just always covering for each other's emotional pain. And yet when you do that for each other, what you're ultimately saying to each other is, well, I don't think you're strong enough to get through this. Or we're not strong enough to get through this together. Interesting. And so when you, when you avoid that over and over again for decades, um, that creates a void inside of you where you really do think like, oh, I can't face the shadow. I can't face my demons. I can't face the hardest, most difficult emotions or the hard truths about the moment. Like we're not going to make it through this. Our, our love isn't strong enough to let us get through this. And, you know, I think my dad came from an avoiding family my mom did too, you know, Ohio, Midwest. And then I did, you know, so it was kind of how we were all built. Um, and, and so I ended up going to grad school and getting to like unpack all of my luggage, all of my baggage, you know, because they make right. you do it. If you're going to be a psychologist, they're like, you got to fucking unpack your shit. Yeah. And, and, and I got to really start to tell my stories in rooms where, it wasn't entertainment or it wasn't storytelling that it was, it was an expression of my truth and an expression of my soul. And it gave me big permission and a lot of confidence um, to do that. And, and it actually healed me deeply because I could speak my truth and people went, Oh my God, thank you for speaking your truth because my family does that too. Or, sure. or I understand that pain or we did it this way or whatever. And so we could talk about it then and unpack it um you know and talk about origin stories and things sure. like that so yeah it's fully within your right to tell this because as much as 
I mean, it seems like a lot of your life must be influenced by the shadow that your father cast over you. Oh, he, hugely, hugely. I'm I'm actually writing another solo show right now, and it's all about sure. shadow and but ego. This, as much as he is the legend, this is your story. Yes. You are, he's your father, and that's actually part of his story too, you know? Yep, absolutely. It's, and it's just a part of our stories, you know? I mean, it's like, it, it's it's a circumstance I can't control, and because of it, it shaped me and it shaped my choices and it shaped my way of looking at the world. And of course my parents shaped me, you know, enormously and being an only child, you're very much shaped by your parents oh, too. Absolutely. And you don't have a sibling to lean on. It's, it's, Do not. Yep. You got to figure it out on your own. And you don't really... have a, a fellow co-conspirator to compare notes with about mom and dad. Exactly. And say, is it, are we insane or is it that? Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that you're just, you're, you're just always feeling insane basically. Um, because it's like, well, they can't be insane because if they're insane, I'm really fucked. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And I need to break the generational, generational, uh, curse. Well, you know, and that's part of it too, you know, finally getting the courage to speak my truth. And I mean, even doing the couple of times I did my early solo show, but then after I got out of grad school, I started getting on stages and doing my stories. And because I, I'd gotten enough confidence and I'd learned enough about breaking generational trauma, that it's important to speak your truth and to say it and, and always do it in a way Never from the victim place. You cannot be a storyteller from the victim place. No one wants to hear it. And it's, you know, right. and ultimately you don't want to live that life. Go do your therapy first and then come tell your story. Yeah, yeah. You got to be in a good place before you share the trauma. You have to own your part in it. You have to be willing to say, look, yes, A, B, and C. And I kept making that choice to never speak my truth, you know? And that's really mm -hmm. what writing my book about and doing my solo show was about was, yeah, we kind of set it, set it, set ourselves up this way in this family, but this is how we continued the dance, you know, and this is what families do. They continue the dance, you know, until they don't anymore. And, and, you know, unfortunately it took my father's death for me to ultimately go on his stage with his audience to tell them our family's truth. And, yeah. you know, that's what it took. One of the lines I liked, um, because you discussed, you know, your father was clear that he he took offense, but he he would not censor you as an artist in your story. That was a big thing. But one of the lines that I wrote it down, you said, I finally understood that disappointing and betraying my parents was inevitable and necessary if I was to ever grow up. And yeah. I think that's a hugely important lesson to learn. Um, you know, our parents are fallible human beings and they, they they did what they did. But our story is our own story, you know. Absolutely. And it's that thing too, of trusting that you can survive that, that whatever, the, whatever the relationship looks like on the other side of that is okay. You know, that perpetuating the enmeshed unhealthy relationship, which is what we had, um, isn't helping anybody and is, is, is more exhausting than you think it is, but you're in it. So it's all, you know, um, and so, and honestly, you know, all that, all that emotional storage space takes up some health <laughs> space too. You know what I mean? It sure does. And I don't need to speculate too much, but if you got all that stuff going on, it's certainly going to affect your physical. Absolutely. Uh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's, um, let's talk about your father. I mean, he had what, three heart attacks. His heart problems was sort of the a theme throughout your whole life, huh? 
Yeah, yeah, he had um yeah, he had three heart attacks and like five angioplasties and he never had open heart surgery. My mom kind of didn't want him to have it because she knew about the depression and the personality change that happens to a lot of people and a lot of people talk about Robin Williams and really feel like that happened to him after his open heart surgery. He had an enormous depression and I have I have friends who were really close with him and really saw that happen for him. Um, and so, yeah, that was always kind of looming around. I was always waiting for the 3 a.m. call. Um, and then, you know, you're always waiting for it and then it happens. And uh, people say, were you surprised? And I say, I were you shocked? Were you surprised? I'm like, when you get the phone call, I'm not shocked, but I was surprised it happened on that day because you just never know, you know? And um, so I was there for my mom's death and, um, but I was not there for my dad's and I'm glad I wasn't. I don't think being there for both your parents' death, I don't think I would have been there for me. <laughs> no, one's enough. One was enough. One's all you need. Um, and it wasn't, you know, these aren't like people who are 99 years old and you're like patting their hand and going, good job. You know, these are people taken too early. My dad was 71 when he died. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I was in Hawaii. I was officiating a friend's wedding, another comedian, Craig Shoemaker. And um, I had, uh, <laughs> I was on the uh, island of Maui where there's a famous story in my memoir and in the documentary too, they, I end up talking about it there, about us being in a place during the drug years, a place called Napili Kai, where my parents like went after each other with knives. Like it was an insane moment, a horrible moment. And I like finally showed my emotions to my parents, like the pain and the suffering and the terror I was in. And it really impacted my dad, actually. He spoke about that, that, you know, years later, he, I mean, like that really got him thinking like, we've got to fucking figure this shit out because we are torturing this child. You know, he knew I was, it was, an, it had an effect on me for years, but he knew it was like, okay, we need to figure this out quicker than, <laughs> than it's going. And I had made my parents sign a peace treaty at the trip. And of course, 20 minutes later, they broke it because yeah, there was yeah, they completely violated the, the clause. There was cocaine involved. There's no, you know, right. you know. Um, so I was on, I was in Maui for this wedding and I had uh, rented a car and I ended up going up to the Dapili Kai. I was like, oh my God, I've got to go up to the Dapili Kai because I want to see you know, which version of me is still here? Like, I want to go to the place where the trauma happened, where the, you know, the broken Carlins were and just see, because I've done a lot of fucking work on myself, God damn it, you know, up to that point. It had been about 11 years since my mom died and I'd gone through, you know, my training as a psychologist and all my own therapy and blah, 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 practicing Buddhist and all that. And, um, and I went there and had this like amazing experience of like, love. And I could really feel that it was like, it was over for us. And I was clear and I didn't have any pain or resentment or any of that. And I get in the car and I'm driving back to the condo and I call my dad and he, my dad never picks up and, uh, and he picks up and I tell him where I was and what I'd experienced. And we had this profound 
real conversation and just like raw emotion in the space. I could hear my dad was completely choked up on the other line because I just said to him, you know, dad, it's done. I said, you know, like all the pieces of ourselves that we left there, whatever part of our broken hearts and souls, I just gathered them back up for us. It's done, dad. It's complete. It's over. Um, we are a healed unit. You know, the Carlins are okay. And it was just this profound conversation. It was one of those conversations where, because my dad and I had so much, we took care of each other so much emotionally. It was just like the most truthful, authentic conversation we'd ever had. It was just so powerful. Um, such a, an incredible space between us. And, um, and then I did the wedding. And then the next day after the wedding, I had like a massage or something and turned off my phone for hours because I'd like slept and massage and swam in the ocean. And the whole time my phone was off, my poor husband and my best friend were at the emergency room with my father. He'd had, he was told by the doctor three days earlier to go to the hospital to have some tests. His heart failure was acting up. He had had heart failure for two years and he should have gone on in on Friday and he didn't. And it became an emergency and, um, and he died. He died there at St. John's and um, he died in the very same room in the emergency room that my mother died in. Oh, wow. And in the book, I believe your verbal response, you had the same words. You said, no, not today. Yeah. Yeah. It is just that thing where it's like, you don't, it's, it is that thing. It's like, well, of course I've been expecting this and what, you know? And so, and it was, and you know, the surrealness of my mother's death was what it was, but the surrealness of my father's death was fucking insane. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about that because you address it in the book, but what is it like to be grieving George Carlin, the father, while the entire world is grieving George Carlin, the legend that we all know personally through his comedy. It's like, literally it hit me right away. I mean, I go to the airport and I'm like, I'm like the most privileged person on earth. I go up to the guy to check in and I'm like, just like, first of all, like my parent just died. Do you have like a grieving rate or something, you know, like the death emergency, you know, or I don't know what it was. And he's like, whatever that was. And I'm like, fuck it. Just put it on the credit card. Give me a first class ticket. I can't sit in economy in this shape. And then, or there, or maybe like at first I asked him, like, "Well, could you bump me up?" I'm like, "My dad's George Carlin, you know George Carlin." And the guy looks at me, has no idea who my dad is. <laughs> I know. I laughed so hard when I when I read that. He's like uh, looking at me like I underlined he, he, that. That's so yeah. funny. You're like, he's I like a Hawaiian guy. Card. He's like, mm, yeah, I don't know who he is. Nope. And I'm like, of course, I get the only person on earth who does not know who my dad is. <laughs> so, so immediately, it's like. And I'm being such a privileged little fuckhead yeah, right now by even asking this. It's so <laughs> like, horrible. If I were anyone else on earth, I probably would. But I actually, I don't really pay attention to pop culture. I'm more of a <laughs> literature guy. Exactly. Just totally. Um, and then, so of course, funny. I'm in the airport. Avoiding televisions. I avoiding televisions. Because so I do tough. not want to see him on the scroll. I, because it's not real. It's not real yet. I've not seen my dead father. I know I've been told he's dead. I know I'm getting on an airplane and all of that. But it's like, for some reason, if entertainment tonight says it's real, it's real. That's the nail in the coffin right there. 
That's it. <laughs> I, I suspended all disbelief until so, TMZ. Yeah, so, and thank God it's, you know, it's 2008. So there's, there's no, there's no smartphones at this point. So thank God I don't have a smartphone. So I'm, there's no, I'm not, I'm not scrolling on anything. I'm just like avoiding TVs. Um, and then I'm like, all right, fine. I'll go look. And I like, I guess I find one of those old fashioned, they used to have them in airports where you could go and sit in a chair and put money into a machine and get on the internet for 10 minutes. Sure. A little Wi-Fi cafe. Yeah, I did it. I Googled it. I'm like, all right, he's dead or whatever I did with it. Whatever the search engine was in 2008, sure. I did that. <laughs> Um, I'm like, okay, yeah, look at that. He's on the internet. It's real. Um, yeah. So it was very surreal and, uh, it still is still is, uh, but immediately pouring in. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well then, yeah. (laughs) I kind of collapse at home. And then the next morning it was around 10 AM sleeping in. I think I took, you know, drugs to go to sleep. I don't know what, how I got to sleep. I don't even know. It's, it's just the worst feeling as you know, Micah, going to sleep on those days, because you know, when you wake up, you're going to remember again what happened. And it's like the trauma happens all over again. Very much so. Yeah. It's so, it's such a weird thing. So you're afraid to go to sleep because you don't want to wake up to have the trauma. You'd rather just be in the trauma of it instead of like, that fucking moment where you're like, oh, I'm waking up. Oh, fuck. Right. So like, you're like, uh, wait, where am I? Let me get my bearings. Oh, and then you're like, oh, fuck. my dad just, yeah, my dad just fucking. And then that pain in your chest comes and so like 10 a.m. the phone rings and I can hear my husband. Um, Hello. Yeah. Yes. She's not. She's not available right now. Like, oh, I wonder who's calling hey, my husband. on your on your behalf. Always very much so N- knew it was going to need it to happen and uh, comes t- and he's like, I'll, I'll take, I'll take the, I'll, I'll let her know. She she'll call you back or something like that. And he comes to the door in the bedroom. I'm like, so who was that? That was Larry King. I'm like, Larry King, Larry King, <laughs> like Larry King just called me. Right. Yeah. Larry King wants to know if you want to be on the, sh- they're having a show tonight about your dad. He would love for you to come into the studio to be on the panel. And I like sit up in bed and I'm like, oh, okay. All right. Well, I guess I'm and Bob's like, um, Kel, you don't have to do that. Right. And I'm like, oh, really? I don't have to do that? Like, it's not an obligate, like it's not part of my daughter of famous person contract <laughs> Um, because it kind of feels like that. It's like, right. no, Kel. And, and then it like hits me like where I'm at emotionally. Like I come back to my body and I'm like, yeah, probably not ready to do that. Like, A, never really been on television. Can't imagine putting three sentences together right now. It's like, okay, well, maybe I can like, you know, so they end up calling in. My 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 uncle and I both ended up calling in and Roseanne and Gary Shandling and I think Lewis Black was on. Oh, nice. And they were all, Lewis was like in tears. It was just so sweet. Um, and then the other phone calls started coming. Well, I think Gary ended up calling me right away. Sure. I never, I, I just have to explain to people. I did not know comedians. We did not hang out with comedians. My dad was not, my dad was an introvert. My dad was on the road by himself. Comedians were on the road by themselves and don't do comedy clubs. Don't hang out with comedians for the most part. Uh, and my dad just wasn't a social guy. He was a total writer, introvert kind of a guy. Um, to get my dad to do anything social was torture for him. Uh, although he always enjoyed it when he was there. Uh, but I didn't know comedians. We didn't hang out with comedians. Uh, and then comedians started calling me. 
and every single one of them were amazing and uh, immediately said to me, I'm here for you. Whatever you need, I'm here for you. You are family. And that was Lewis who said that to me. Richard Belzer said that to me. Uh, Gary Shandling and I spent an hour on the phone together. Uh, he, ended, he ended up becoming my mentor and a dear, dear friend of mine. M mentored me and helped me, um, gave me notes all along with my solo show. Um, and, and your father's uh, death really uh, opened up just the doors to this new tribe. A hundred percent. I became part of the comedy tribe. I, be I became friends with Paul Provenza, who opened me up to even the bigger part, other parts of the comedy world. Paul became my director for my solo show. Um, yes, it was. So I had these two tribes that immediately opened up for me. One were the comedians and that world and just and all the club owners and everyone was just so generous and so lovely with me. And then the other tribe that happened was my dad's fans. Um, because, you know, 2008 was the year Facebook came sure. and Twitter came and suddenly I was on Facebook and social media and being immersed in my dad's fans. And, um, and they really, really kept me afloat that first year. I could not have done it without them. They, they were my web of love and light, both the comedians and the fans. And, uh, I, and I didn't have to, I could be in my grief sparingly. And do that. And then I could go and really be distracted by talking about him with them or getting to hang out with these amazing other comedic minds and geniuses and hearts, big hearted men too, and women too, but a lot of guys. Um, and they, 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 they kept me alive. That's incredible. I'm glad that the outpouring of both comedians and fans. Your father was such an influential. I mean, you know, you and I are probably a generation apart. I don't know where generations fall, but I discovered him at 14. It was hugely influential. Uh, I think complaints and grievances was the first one. And then when I saw, you know, life is not worth losing, I, I just fell in love with him. And then I dug through like, you know, class clown, all that older stuff. Yep. Um, and I think it's a testament to uh, his legacy that, you know, it's passed down through generations. At one point in the book, you're talking about you were at university and one of your professors put on a video of your father. Funnily enough. Oh, no. Oh, no. It was a cassette tape, Micah. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, it was I forgot. Back we are in the truly day different generations. My bad. Cassette tape. It might have been was... an eight track if we're going to be specific. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, was it was 1985. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, I said all that to say that that tradition still carries on. When I was part of my uh, brief academia at the this community college in northern Minnesota in 2008, 2009, my interpersonal communications professor, he goes, today we're going to watch a video. And it was your father speaking to Congress. And it was hilarious. And Oh, it was the, um, no, it wasn't to Congress. It was the. Um... It wasn't, was it the correspondence dinner? No. No, no, it was. um it was a press. It was the National Press Club. Okay, there we go. Yep, yeah, and he sorry. talked about Congress, political Congress correctness. Congress would not have been laughing as much as they were laughing. Sorry. No, he, and he would he would have been testifying in front of, but he didn't testify in front oh, of. Oh yeah, Congress. he was in Congress for different things. It was the National Press Club, and he talked about political correctness and stuff like that. Yeah, there it is. Yep. Yeah. So you know, obviously his stuff is timeless. It's, yep. It was nice to, uh, I, I just finished the chapters. You sort of uh, did a real nice eulogy. You told about the seven out of 7,000 things your father shared with you. But it seemed like 
the ones that really resonated with me was his music choice and his belief that everybody should be treated, uh, you know, equally. Yep. And um, I mean, that's a huge uh, part of, well, well, not the music, but I was just so drawn to his message. He was such a unique voice and, you know, such a genius. So I'm glad that um, it's really nice to see like a, a different layer of the person because he was a person. He wasn't only a he, legend. He, he was, was a human being. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what I'm writing about these days is um, the way our brains kind of treat people in the spotlight, how we forget their humanity because we kind of make them into gods. Um, sure. And we kind of remove their humanity from them or just the, the nature of being in the spotlight in our, especially in American culture, it's, it's different in Europe, but um, there is this thing, our brain, our mind just does to people as we, you know, unless they remind us constantly of their humanity. And that's why people are always so shocked when celebrities have scandals. It's like, you know, it's like that people magazine Piece they're just like us. They're just like us. They <laughs> pick up the dry cleaning. It's, it's like, like Matthew McConaughey eating an apple. You're like, wow. <laughs> wow, he's, he's, he's eating a piece of just like fruit. Me. You know? I had no he idea. He food. <laughs> he has someone else put on his pants one leg at a time. <laughs> but it is this interesting thing. And it is interesting. And I, what I'm writing about and what I, what I want to talk about in the piece is about how stepping into my dad's light for me, um, what that felt like and what that did to me and what I was searching for in it. Um, because I'd always been in the shadow. And so the light became this thing of like, Ooh, what's over there. Right. And, um, and so from kind of like a mythological archetypal psychological point of view about, um, what, what's it like to visit the light and to find our own light because each of us are in the shadow about from someone, or something. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Um, well, it sounds like uh, you've done a lot of personal growth in the last 20 or 30 years, and it's it's inspiring. It's nice to, to read about this stuff. I can't imagine what it would have been like growing up in the in the environment that you grew up in. Um, it was just my life. It really is. Like, well, that's course. the Nobody thing. Nobody it's and it's not even that it's just it's your normal whatever your normal was micah i'm like i don't know what that normal was like i just know what my normal was like so it's just your normal so yeah it's that's the weird thing about it is it's just it's just life we're just all dealing with their circumstances and it seems like you took a little bit more spiritual path than your father he said that you're the shaman of the family yeah, but my dad really gave me my spirituality. I mean, he was the one who was a seeker and he loved the mystery of the universe and he always loved coincidences and synchronicities. And um, he really taught me to pay attention to that and to question everything. Um, and so he was a he was a huge seeker, you know? And yeah. so he really gave me that, even though um, I mean, and, he, and I never went to a real church or anything, so I never had to recover from any kind of religious trauma sure. yeah. <laughs> like, like he did or others. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to say that he was not, you know, we all consider like, you know, he had some very pronounced uh, opinions on that, but um, he was yeah. very much a, you know, you said he, he made you seek new questions and think about things differently for me very much. So it was hugely influential when I was like, yeah. oh, I, I, I truly hadn't thought about institutions in this way. 
you know, even just in general, when he's talking about America and who owns America, it's a big club. You're not in it. Yeah. I was like, whoa, someone, someone is being paid to say this in front of thousands of people and he's making it so funny and accessible. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah, was, I certainly don't think he was very deep and philosophical and, and very, very and, much so. Yeah. Questioning everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Looking at things from different angles. Yep. Well, rest in peace to both George and Brenda. Yeah, absolutely. They were wonderful people. So what are, what are your next plans with this, uh, this thing you're writing? I'm just starting to work on it. It's just becoming real to me. Uh, it's going to be a performance piece of some kind. I just know that I want to use, I want it to be a theater piece. Um, I know what I want to write about. I just, I want to write about my life since my dad's death, but mm -hmm. I don't want it to necessarily be, it's, it's what stopped me and stumped me about it is that I've done a lot of work the last five, six years in stepping out, you know, like trying to, un. I, I really owned being his daughter for a while in order to tell my story and, and also, you know, to get access to tell my story. I mean, it's a reality of it. I get how the fucking entertainment industry works. Um, I mean, Lewis Black didn't call me when my dad died. I'll tell you that much. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, I tried to do it with a lot of care and a lot of trust. But I also have a story to tell about what it's like to be, to go from the shadow to the light. And I want to make it as universal as possible, where even though, once again, my circumstances are a little extra extraordinary, but I think... I think I want to, I'm trying to find my, the human story inside of it, the universal story inside of it. So I'm working on that. Um, but I also work most of a lot of my day and a lot of my mind is focused on my, um, my personal coaching work. And I have a beautiful program called humans on the verge where I help people find the courage to live a more authentic next chapter in their life. I work with mostly people over 40 who've kind of lived a bit of life and are at that questioning of like, you know, is this all there is kind of a question? Um, or And people have a lot of different turning points in their life. Sometimes they're empty nesters. Sometimes it's a health scare. Sometimes someone dies in their life. Um, lots, you know, retirement, all sorts of things. But, and I love doing that work because I really feel like that's the work I ended up that's how I got onto stage. I mean, I had to have courage to speak my authentic story on a, on a public stage. Um, and I feel like I've taken a lot of what I've learned about how to do that and poured it into um, a coaching program. And I've figured out the kind of the three or four things that people really need in order to move through that. And I've, I've been a certified life coach since 2006. And, you know, so I've been doing this work a while, but um so, yeah, so I've been doing that for the last five years, mostly building this coaching program and teaching through this and coaching through this. And uh, and so now I'm returning back to my creative work this year and I'm excited about it. Well, that's cool. Sounds like you've really found a way to use your gifts to help other people. I really appreciate you, you know, sharing all this stuff. It's, um, you know, it's hugely insightful. It's nice to know oh. your story as well as George's story. Thank you, Micah. I appreciate yeah, that. No, I really appreciate your time, Kelly. I don't know if I want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, yeah, I've, there... I've actually got an appointment in about 10 minutes. All right. Well, uh, um, yeah, let's, uh, let's have a nice little touchdown. <laughs> is there, is there anything? Bring the plane down onto the runway. <laughs> Real smooth. Um, 
Where can people follow you? I mean, sorry, it seems disingenuous to do plugs, but it that is the formula of podcasts. Yeah, no, I no, I appreciate it. I mean, that's how you reach people these days. Uh, I'm on, I'm still on Twitter, uh, at Kelly. Thank under- you for calling it Twitter. I do. Us, I, us I will true not loyalists call it. are never going to acknowledge the new mm-hmm. rebrand. Nope, just waiting for him to go away. I yeah. uh, don't know if it'll ever happen, but it's that's my hope. <laughs> and things will ever never go back to the same. But uh, yes, I'm Kelly underscore Carlin over there. Uh, And then I am on Instagram as Kelly Carlin is here uh, because someone had Kelly Carlin bastards. Uh, I'm on blue sky as Kelly Carlin, no underscore. And uh, you can uh, find out about my coaching program at humans on the verge.com. My web, my Kelly Carlin website is a mess. Don't even bother. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, I think we got enough, enough avenues to find you and your output. And of course the book, by all means, pick it up. I have it. Yes, please. Carlin Carlin Home Companion. Companion. Yes. I can't recommend it highly enough. Oh, it's very funny, but it's also very poignant. Obviously it's not. Yeah. And watch the the documentary, everybody. It's on HBO max. It's called George Carlin's American dream. I'm very proud of it. I'm an executive producer on it. We won an Emmy for it. I got to do the Emmy speech. It was very exciting. Congrats. Amazing thing. Amazing day. One of the most amazing days of my life. Um, Very, very proud that we won the Emmy. And I'm sure sure your parents would be proud of that too. That's fantastic. I, I know they would. And I know, I also know that, you know, Judd really leaned into my story and into the book to tell my mother's and our family's story. That's great. So, that was that was a real honor when I realized because I had nothing to do with it editorially. I gave it all to Judd and his team, Michael Bonfiglio, the other director, and they ran with it. And um, I was really, really touched how much they had leaned into all the work I had done on myself and to tell my family story. And so it was just a real honor to know that the world saw the heart and soul of the Carlins. Yeah, that's um, that's really fantastic that even uh, you know in death everybody's there's people still learning about george carlin you know yeah, yeah. these teenagers that are, he's probably going to be trending on tiktok next week for some reason uh, <laughs> seven dirty words is going to be discovered by the zoomers truly truly um, that would that would be great but yeah i mean his legacy is eternal uh and yeah thank you um thanks for sharing your energy and your story and uh i think that's about it i appreciate your time kelly carlin thank you so much thank you micah thanks for having me Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah. Be well. Take care. Be well, everyone. Bye. Thanks, Kelly. So that was episode 29. Huge thank you to Kelly Carlin for sharing her story. Really appreciate it. Make sure you follow her on Twitter at Kelly underscore Carlin on Instagram. Kelly Carlin is here. Check out the documentary, George Carlin's American Dream. It's on HBO Max. I believe it's on Hulu now as well. And read the book. It's fantastic. It's called A Carlin Home Companion. As always, if you enjoyed the program, feel free to tell your friends, family, you know, local politicians about it. I'm trying to get the word out. If you could write a review or rate five stars, that would sort of bump some visibility. Really do appreciate everybody who's been listening so far. Stay tuned. Got a couple more episodes in the near future. Until then, be good to yourself. Goodbye.